primary topic is going to be about three ecumenical church councils that occurred in the 300s and 400s AD. These are very important councils. Last week we spent some time talking about just one council, so maybe we'll fly through these a little faster than the one we did last week. Um, but those of you who weren't here, last week we talked about the Arian controversy in the church. There's a guy named Arius that had come on the scene into the church and made the claim that Jesus was a created being, that there was a time, to use his words, that Jesus was not. Um, so the church responded to that at the Council of Nicaea, and at the Council of Nicaea they condemned Arius's teaching, and they produced a creed called the Nicene Creed, which identified who Jesus is and that Jesus is um, eternal and that he is co, um, he is the same substance as God the Father. So there was not a time when Jesus was not. That was the argument that the Nicene Fathers made in correction to Arius. Uh, we talked about the Latin term, actually the Greek term, homoousius, that Jesus was the same essence as the Father, and we said that was he was made of the same stuff in his being. And he was begotten of the Father and not made. Um, so that's what we talked about last week. As I closed last week, though, I also told you that it's not like this condemnation came down on Arius and his followers, and then they just stopped um, having any influence in the empire. But they did still have influence, and for the next 60 or so years, the Arians kind of battled with what we'll call the Nicenes, the people that are the followers of the Nicene Creed, uh, for the next 60 years. And at different times, each of them were put into exile and um, brought back into power in different places in the church. So it was really kind of a confusing time for the church. And the church saw fit to call another council and two other councils at least subsequent to that that we're going to touch on today. Uh, so the, the primary things we're going to talk about today are the fact that these councils ratified the biblical belief that Jesus was of the same substance as the Father, also that he was purely, he was wholly divine and wholly human. I want to say holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. So he was fully man and fully God. Uh, these councils also talk about the Holy Spirit and the personhood of the Spirit and uh, how we think about the Spirit in relation to the Trinity and to the other members of the Godhead. So those are the kind of the things that, the themes that we're going to touch on today. And you're going to see kind of traces of those themes kind of throughout church history, because these heresies that we're actually opposing today, uh, that we're going to talk about that we're opposed today, kind of keep creeping up in the church. So those are the things we'll talk about today. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, though. I thought it would be fitting that we identify where the scriptures talk about Jesus's divinity or deity and also his humanity, since those are both major um, topics of discussion today. So if you turn to Hebrews, we're going to read chapter 1. And I really didn't want to stop in any of Hebrews 1, so we're going to read the entire chapter. And then we're going to read Hebrews 4. So Hebrews 1 is going to talk, talk to us about Jesus's divinity, and then we're going to talk about his humanity in Hebrews 4. Follow along as I read, and then we'll pray. And actually, as I read, why don't you worship the Lord as well? Because this is amazing truths about who our Savior is. So follow along and worship with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, a, become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then chapter 4, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. So that's Jesus' divinity explained in Hebrews. So chapter 4, verse 14, we're going to read through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may see mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you can see that God is man, or Jesus is man as well as being divine as we saw in chapter 1. Let's pray, and then we'll start our lesson for the day. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we worship you. Lord, we worship you, um, um, God, three in one. Praise the Father, Lord, for sending the Son. Lord, praise the Son for um, reconciling us to the Father through his perfect sacrifice. Lord, thank you for the indwelling spirit, Lord, that's in us, that um, we can fellowship with you and know the truths of your word. Lord, praise you for the Trinity. Lord, I ask that as we look upon these things, Lord, that our hearts would be drawn to worship you more. Lord, that our um, minds would be engaged and our hearts would be aflamed. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together as a body. Lord, I pray that our time would be honoring to you and bring glory to you as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in my introduction, I did fail to tell you that I'm going to I'm going to end about ten minutes early. Um, I'm going to I'm going to cede some time to Damon Cup, who's here from Uganda, to kind of talk to us just about uh, the work they're doing in Uganda for a few minutes. And if we get technology correct, we should have some pictures for you guys to see as well. Um, so I just wanted to give him an opportunity to do that today. So you won't have to listen to me too long, but anticipate the fact that Damon's coming as well. Um, So where we are in the history of the world in the Roman Empire right now is 325 AD was the date for the Council of Nicaea that we talked about last week. Um, And at at the Council of Nicaea, um, the church affirmed the biblical teaching of Jesus being fully man and fully God and that he was of the same essence as the Father. Like I said earlier, though, the people that opposed that view were the Arians, so those were the followers of Arius, and those guys did not die out completely, and they're still rising to power over the next few years, up until 380. At this time, though, Constantine was the uh, emperor of Rome at this time, and he had legalized Christianity. We talked at length about that in week one. He, however, dies in 330 A.D., And around 330, some of his sons come to power. Three of his sons come to power, and the the empire is divided up into three different sections. Um, All of their names have some derivative of Constantine, so I'm not going to try to explain them to you. It's like Constans, Constantinus, and somebody else. So there's three guys that kind of take over the reign of the empire. These guys do something very unique, and this might have been prevalent in the day. I didn't, it was outside my study, but they actually killed all the other known heirs of Constantine. So no one else was going to be able to come onto the throne that could make a claim to the throne of the Roman Empire. Save for one guy named Plut... uh, What's his name? Why did I say Plutarch? I think that's somebody some other time in history. Um, I'll get to that in my notes at some point. Um, 
Julian is the other one that they did not kill. He was a young man at the time, and he was a nephew of Constantine. Well, it ends up after about 20 or 30 years, all the uh, sons of Constantine die out, and a guy comes to the throne, this one nephew that had a right to the throne. His name was Julian. And in church history, we call him Julian the Apostate. So we're starting to see things moving favorably for the Christians at this time in history. They're not witnessing persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Yet the second generation after Constantine, the guy that comes to the throne, is not favorable to Christians. His name is Julian the Apostate. And he probably has a good reason not to be favorable to the Christians. Because the Christians that he knew in high places, these sons of Constantine, killed everybody else in his family. So why would I, what's so appealing about Christianity to him when those that claim to be Christians are murdering people in the name of their empire? So Julian comes to power and he sees, and you kind of see this struggle throughout all of, as the empire um, continues to dwindle in power, the idea of here's, the, here's Christianity rising to power and paganism kind of falling off. Well, Julian tries to do the opposite. He tries to bring paganism back to the culture. Now, he doesn't do anything as extreme as the previous emperors had done as far as making general widespread persecution against the Christians. But instead, what he does, he starts doing things just to support local leadership to do some persecution of Christians. He does things like uh, takes away items that are in the Christian churches and returns them to pagan temples, um, does a variety of things like that. And he kind of undermines the authority of the church. And he doesn't really play a major role in any of the decisions of the church, saying that he doesn't even profess to be a Christian. Yet, he doesn't last very long on the scene, and he dies. And the person that follows him is a man by the name of Theodosius, who is a Christian. And in 380 AD, he declares that the primary religion of the Roman Empire must be Christianity. So in 313, we, that's a major date for Christianity. That's when Constantine says it's now legal to be a Christian within the Roman Empire. 380, it becomes the state-sponsored church of the Roman Empire. So it is the official um, religion of Rome, 380 AD. So those of you that love dates, remember 380 AD. And that is at the hands of a man by the name of Theodosius. So we've gotten through a couple generations of emperors past uh, Constantine. But there's some major theological uh, people going on at this time that are doing some things to kind of refine what the Nicene Creed has said. Several of those guys, I put this on your notes, and I added more to your notes at least guys' names that I thought you wouldn't be able to spell, so I didn't have to spell them. Um, so those are on your notes now. But there's, there's, there's several people that are very important in this generation in the 300s. Three of them are called, they identify them in church history as the Great Cappadocians. And those guys are Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, and then uh, Gregory of Nazianus. So these three guys do a lot to refine and undergird the theology that's in the Council of Nicaea. Uh, there's another guy who's known as the great preacher of Constantinople, and his name is John Chrysostom, another noted theologian at the time. Something else that rises up, though, during this time is, so when uh, Constantine comes to power, he creates his own capital. He moves the capital from Rome to modern-day Istanbul, which is Constantinople. And once that happens, the bishop of Constantinople starts really rising to power and becomes a very important position in the church. So you have the bishop of Rome, very important. And by the time of this lesson ends, we know the bishop of Rome is actually the pope. So he's the head of the church. Um, I'm not going to delve into that today. That's going to be a whole other segment. But just understand that by the time our lesson ends, there is a pope in power. And then there's the Bishop of Constantinople. That's very important. And there's two other seats in uh, the Roman Empire in Christendom that are very important. One is the Bishop of Antioch, right? And we know in Acts, Antioch's where the people were first called Christians, one of the very early churches. And then also one of the centers of learning in, at that time was in Alexandria, which is modern-day Egypt. Uh, so you had Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome, four major seats of authority for the local church or for the, the, the church in the empire. So we have that. 
So Rome, is, everybody agrees Rome's important. Constantinople's got to be important. It's the capital. So these other two places want to kind of talk about why they're important, Antioch and Alexandria. And a rift kind of starts developing between Antioch and Alexandria. So the Antiochians and the Alexandrians, if I can, I, I was hoping I could say Antiochian, but I think I did it, so that's good. Um, so a rift starts happening to these guys, and it's really a theological rift about one of them emphasizes Jesus' humanity over his divinity, and the other one emphasizes Jesus' divinity over his humanity. So there's two schools of thought here, and any of your theology, if you're from those areas, is heavily influenced by that thought. Well, we shouldn't exercise Jesus' divinity over his humanity or vice versa. We need to see them together. But these guys start arguing about that. So this is what's happening. This is all Eastern Roman Empire. We consider all that the East. The West is Rome. That's the central of that. Rome is not as concerned with these theological debates because they're worried about survival. Attacks are coming from the north, from the barbarians, and they're mainly, mainly concerned about that. But the relative peace in the Eastern Empire kind of allows them to have a little bit more philosophical discussions. And you remember last week we talked about that everybody had an opinion on this. Uh, the commoners, the people at the, uh, when you were going to get your bread or make your trades or whatever, all had an opinion as you exchanged money or whatever you would say, I believe Jesus was, uh, was made. And somebody else would say, no, no, he was begotten. And they would have these arguments within uh, the empire and in the cities. It's a very unique time, one that we probably don't think of very often. Yet, it posed a legitimate question that these guys were arguing about Jesus' divine and human nature. How can the immutable, eternal God be joined to mutable, historical man? I'm not answering that question today, most likely. But what I'm going to give you is kind of the framework that the early church gave in order to make sure that we, don't correct, that we have right teaching and we can stay away from heretical teaching. We're going to talk about that by highlighting some heresies in the early church. So it was the Alexandrians who stressed Jesus' divine, his, that he was divine over his humanity, so that was more important in their view. They were influenced by early church fathers like Clement in Origen. Um, uh, he, they believed that Jesus had to be full, fully God, and his revelation, the revelation that he gave was divine. We don't disagree with that. It's just they elevated it over his humanity. The people at Antioch, um, like I said earlier, emphasized his humanity over his divinity. And they thought this was necessary because in order for there to be a savior, he had to be fully human. Well, we agree with that, but we're not going to do it at the expense of his divinity. Uh, they agreed that he was God, um, but that had to be understood in some way uh, to, to not disparage his humanity. But this was the political struggle of the day rooted in theology. So just imagine our um, current uh, candidates for president debating the nature of Jesus and his deity and his humanity. And that would be interesting if that was to happen. But that's what was happening. Like I said, Rome was not concerned about this. But Rome did have an opinion about Jesus' divinity and his humanity. They had accepted kind of the, the biblical position that was passed down by Tertullian, which said in Christ that there were two natures united in one person. So there is a divine and a human nature, um, but they are united in one person. So this kind of gave some balance to these Eastern views. And this is really the main objective of the next three uh, major ecumenical councils that we'll talk about. So remember, ecumenical council, ecumenical means church-wide, all of Christianity was participating in these, um, not, we don't have evangelicals and Catholics and Protestants at this time, uh, this is the entire church participating in these church councils. And these councils resulted in right teaching about the nature of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. So let's dive into these. The first one on your notes is the Council of Constantinople which is about 55 years after the Council of Nicaea. Uh, 380 was the date that Christianity became the legal religion of the empire. Um, so at this point, all these actions kind of can go, fall under the umbrella of Christendom because this is the church and the state are very closely related. 
uh, positions like the who is the bishop of a given area is closely tied to some political alliances as well that's already starting and you see that evolve into some very poor choices going forward into the Middle Ages. So the Council of Constantinople was called by the emperor of the time, a man by Theodosius I. Um, Arianism still was having some influence in the eastern part of the empire, despite it being condemned at Nicaea. But then there was another man by the name of Apollinarius who had influence as well. So we're going to talk about what he believed. So he believed that Jesus, okay, you guys get ready for some of this, it's going to be a little bit deep, that Jesus did not have a human intellect in his mind. So the part of Jesus that was divine was his mind and his mental intellect, his rational, his, his ability to rationalize things, his rationale. Um, and what was in Jesus' mind was the word of God. Okay, so there's part of Jesus that is divine and part of him that's human. Not that he's fully divine and fully human. This was his view. Think of it this way. Um, an analogy, which analogies work good for heresies. They don't good, work well when we're trying to explain the Trinity because it's kind of unexplainable, but they work good for heresies, so it's great. Um, so think about a letter. So the letter, somebody writes a letter. That's, let's say that's the word. Something divine is the letter. And then think about an envelope, that being the body. So those are two distinct things. The envelope is containing the word, yet it's not the same thing. They're separate, right? So that's kind of, if you want to use an analogy that would break down if you're trying to use it for the Trinity, um, that's what you can use in thinking about Apollinarius and his views. So the divine is placed into the human to serve as the divine mind or soul. So in this case, Jesus is not fully man, because, and he's not fully God, but he's not fully man because his mind is not um, human. And you think about what we just read in Hebrews, right? Hebrews 4, um, about Jesus' humanity, that every part of him um, was human. So that's, that was one view. The Alexandrians kind of had uh, agreed to this um, because they saw this as... Uh, more correct in their teaching, uh, stressing Jesus' divinity and lowering his humanity. Uh, the Antiochians obviously disagreed with it. Gregory of uh, Nazianus, who I gave you his name earlier, says this, if any believe, he disagrees, so just have that in your mind as I read this to you, if any believe in Jesus Christ as a human being without human reason, they are the ones devoid of all reason and unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. So fully man, taking up, being fully man. He saved that which he joined to his divinity. If only half of Adam had fallen, then it would be possible for Christ to take up and save only half. But if the entire human nature fell, all of it must be united to the word in order to be saved as a whole. All right, we like this guy. He's on our side here. So he's the main sp spokesperson here opposing these views at the Council of Constantinople. Um, he also had the quote, what was not assumed was not healed. So if man, if he didn't assume man's mental state, man's mental state could not be healed or saved at the cross in his view. Um, so the goal of the Council of Nicaea was to reestablish the, the correct doctrinal position at the Council of Nicaea. They made some minor tweaks to their description of Jesus, nothing major. They also removed the uh, condemnation or anathema towards Arianism that was at the close of the council of the document at Nicaea, partly because they wanted to extend this beyond more than just refuting Arianism. They added language about the Holy Spirit. Because remember last week when I gave this to you and it says, and the Holy Spirit, that's all it said about the Holy Spirit. This time they add some more language to that, and this is what it said about the Holy Spirit. So, and in, this is what it says, and in the Holy Ghost, so we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who was with the Father and the Son together, is worshipped and glorified, and who spoke by the prophets. So, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is called 
Lord, major point number one, he has divine functions like giving life in that he inspires the prophets. His origin is from the Father. He's not created, so it says proceeds, just like Jesus was not created but begotten, like we saw at Nicaea. And he is due supreme worship equal to that of the Father and the Son. So really kind of cementing some views on the Holy Spirit uh, for the church. Um, at this point also, besides the emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the removal of the condemnation against Arianism, the third thing that this council did that was very important is they made the Bishop of Constantinople second in command in the church. So we kind of already knew that we were going there uh, just because of the unique setting of Constantinople being the capital. So he uh, was now uh, second in rank in all of Christianity behind the Bishop of Rome. So that creates some really unique opportunities where the probably the best developed candidates to become bishops of Constantinople are from our favorite uh, churches, Antioch and Alexandria, who have divergent views on the nature of Jesus. And all of them now are pitting each other against each other in order to get to the bishop place of Constantinople so they can have more power. So that's what happens as far as the political aspect of the church. Uh, these, the Antiochs, Antiochians, no, that's not right. Antiochians, okay. And Alexandrians are fighting for who can be the bishop of Constantinople. So that kind of comes into play at this time too. So we feel really good about this. We've rejected a heresy at Constantinople. We've added further language to cement uh, what's going on at Nicaea. So where are we going next? Next is the Council of Ephesus, which I got to give you a little background as to why they called it a council. All right, so Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, and this council was attended by about 250 bishops, and their goal was to teach, was to discuss the teachings of who had been recently appointed the bishop of Constantinople, a guy by the name of Nestorius. He was heavily influenced by the Antiochians. That's where he hailed from originally, um, from Antioch, which is in Syria. And he requested that the emperor of the time, Theodosius II, call a council so he could explain his views about uh, the nature of Jesus. Uh, let's see here. So Nestorius actually rooted his argument about what he believed about Jesus in Mary. All right, so get with me here. He's going to start, start talking about Mary some. But the, the thrust of this is not what he's saying about Mary, but what it means about Jesus and what he believes Let's just, cover, let's just say it real quick. Nestorius is a heretic. He's condemned as a heretic uh, by the church. So I preface that so I can say what he says without lightning striking me. No, just kidding. Um, so Nestorius, um, he argued that the use of the term theoticus, uh, which means God-bearer, was incorrect uh, for Mary. He preferred that they use the word Christocitus, which means Christ-bearer. Um, he didn't like the idea that Mary somehow was bearing God, but because he emphasized um, her deity, emphasized Jesus' deity over his humanity. Um, Protestants today don't really, I, I think we're okay with saying God-bearer. The, the Catholic Church has kind of developed that over time, and now Mary is not God-bearer, she's mother of God which kind of exalts Mary to a higher place. But I don't think anybody would argue with the fact that she at one time was bearing God in her womb. That's part of Jesus' humanity. And it's how we hold to the virgin birth. Um, but he believed that using the term God-bearer undermined Jesus' humanity. He affirmed Jesus' full human nature, but he overemphasized his humanity to the detriment of his deity. He declared that in Jesus there were two natures and two persons, not two natures and one person. Um, human nature, nat his human nature and his person were born of Mary, but the divine was not. Um, this was a dangerous teaching since it had Jesus being divided into two natures that were in agreement instead of two natures being joined together in one person. And the result of the 
So they called the council. Nestorius actually calls the council in the hopes that he gets some support. These guys that are like the heretics that keep calling councils to get support, it's not really working out for them. Because that's what Arius did and his follower, his leadership did as well. But the result of the council was actually condemnation for Nestorius's teaching, and they upheld the Nicene Creed and the hypostatic union of Christ. The chief rival to Nestorius was a guy named Cyril, C-Y-R-I-L, and actually Cyril called, he participates in the council that Nestorius had asked to be called. Nestorius, though, kind of called in some extra people to help him, and after waiting for those guys for at least two weeks, so it's not like they just jump on a plane and they show up, you know, I don't, I'm trying to understand how they call these councils and how they get word to all of them. They must be years and years in advance. Um, but Nestorius is kind of waiting for some of his friends from Antioch to show up. They have the appointed time when the council's supposed to begin. Two weeks later, Cyril says, hey, this hasn't happened yet. Let's go ahead and call this council. So what I want to play out for you guys is to see God's sovereign hand in protecting and preserving true doctrine. And what happens is Nestorius is presents his view cyril has a whole bunch of people there that are to help him and they oppose nestorius and they condemn him um two weeks later after that nestorius's people show up on the scene and you know what they do they call their own council so now we have pitting councils back and forth and then cyril calls another council so now we have three councils and the pope makes a decision about which is the council that's correct and it's cyril's council and ultimately nestorius is condemned um, and he is kicked out. Uh, if you are really interested in this kind of thing, you can read this. There's some that argue that Nestorius isn't really a Nestorian, but other people are. Um, I didn't trace that rabbit trail, but you're more than welcome to do that if you'd like. Um, but some people believe that he actually was trying to uncover some other faults in the Alexandrian view, and maybe just went a little too far. But the church has condemned him as a heretic, so we'll just go with that. Um, the church in Persia, though, did adopt his teachings, and so they pretty much saw themselves segregated from the rest of Christendom at that time. Um, so that leads us, so we've got another heresy we've dealt with. And that brings us to 451 in the Council of Chalcedon, which is kind of the, the watershed moment at this time for these major ecumenical councils. So there are other councils going on here. So I've only highlighted now four councils. This is the fourth council, but there's probably many councils here or there or regional councils that occur because there was another council held in 449 in Ephesus that actually had some, it had some uh, incorrect leanings and decisions being made that needed to be corrected. And that was the reason for the Council of Chalcedon in 451. But at Ephesus in 449, um, they, they, there was a teaching of a monk by the name of Eutyches. I have that in your notes, I think. E-U-T-Y-C-H-E-S. And he was defended by his uh, leader at the time, Dioscorus. And they had taught that Jesus, that Christ, had ceased being God when he took on human flesh. Um, they had silenced their rivals at Ephesus. So this was, there was, there was some involvement in this uh, council because they actually received a letter from the Pope of the time, his name was Leo, and they chose not to read it. Um, so that was, he had some influence and wanted to have his voice be heard at this council, yet um, it was not heard. These guys could not accept that Christ's two natures could exist in one person, in Jesus. Um, so they founded that, uh, that their view was correct. Pope Leo though, responded by calling the Council of Chalcedon to correct this one. He called the council at Ephesus a robber's council. So pretty much these guys had seized it and taken it for their own uh, desires and what they wanted it to be. But the, uh, the, so Pope Leo wanted this council to occur, and it was called actually by, there was an empress, so a female emperor that, at this time in the region, and her name was Pulcheria, and she um, opposed this thinking. Um, let's see here. At the Council of Chalcedon, 300 to 500 bishops attended. So we had uh, church history and tradition says there's 318 bishops at the Council of Nicaea. So there are reports of 300 up to 500 bishops. So it's a pretty big um, part of the, the church's history. A lot of people came. Um, 
The result of this council was to reaffirm, and it did, uh, the creeds of the previous ecumenical councils. And it pretty much came down that the view of Tertullian was correct, that there were two natures in one person. And they weren't looking to explain it too much further than that for Jesus. They condemned the second council of Ephesus, and they developed a statement of faith to outline orthodoxy. And that's, I've put that on the back page of your notes. This is their statement of faith. So this is not a creed. So we had the creed at Nicaea, and then we had kind of the, um, what do we call it, further, uh, further furtherance, I guess, of the Nicene Creed that existed at Constantinople. So that's kind of the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. Um, and then now we have this statement of faith, which isn't a creed, so nobody's reciting this day after day in some of the historical churches. But if you can look on with me, we'll look at this. Um, but this, this statement of faith rejected the extreme positions of both the Alexandrians and the Antiochians. Um, it did not attempt to explain the union of Christ's divinity and humanity, but it talked about that it exists, that there is a union between Christ's divinity and his humanity. It kind of sets the limits so it kind of sets these limits, and beyond which is where error lies. So as long as you're within the framework of what Chalcedon, this statement says, you're okay. Um, this is what one historian says. He says, the Chalcedonian pronouncement was comparable to a double row of beacon lights which mark off the channel in between and warn against the dangers which threaten to the left and the right. If you go one way too far, you're in danger. If you go the other way, you're in danger but it kind of set this path of where orthodoxy is, that there's safety in the middle. So let's look at this, and I think we can find four things that kind of talk about these heresies that we've talked about within this document. So follow along with me, and we'll read it. I'll stop kind of in the middle about it and kind of give some explanation. Following then, the Holy Fathers, this is the Chalcedonian Statement of Faith and what they, what they said, we all unanimously, unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same, one and the same Son, the, self, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Okay, so fully God, fully man, of the same essence of God the Father. Kind of correcting Arianism there, right? So that's the one thing. That's kind of the confirmation of Nicaea in this statement of faith. Uh, let's see, the self-same of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, the same co-essential with us according to the manhood, like us in all things, sin apart, so no sin, before the ages begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days the self-same for us and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, Theocritus, as to manhood. I'm going to stop right there real quick. So really, if you're looking at where it says kind of the fourth or fifth line, the self, the self same, co-essential with us, according to the manhood, so fully man, so that kind of uh, contradicts what Apollinarius was teaching and what Constantinople had talked about. So we go back to the middle where we stopped. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved. Okay, so that's kind of Nestorian, or that's kind of more what this Eutychianism was talking about, that there was a change or division in the, pers- in the uh, persons of Christ, or the natures of Christ, excuse me. And then, and both concurring into one person and one hypothesis hypostasis, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one in the self-same Son, and only begotten, God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as from the beginning the prophets had taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. So at the end there, it kind of shows where there is no division or separation, no confusion, no change. So that also is against Nestorianism, which we talked about. So they, what they wanted to point out was this, here is the limits of, this is what, it's, this is what we believe the scriptures and the um, apostles to have passed down to us about who Jesus is, about him being fully man 
and fully God and his nature in that sense. And if you go outside of this, so if somebody's teaching something about Jesus' humanity and his deity, this is a good synopsis of what we believe as Christians. And this has been passed down. So if it goes outside of this, you at least need to be wary of it, if not be really, really concerned about it, um, because this kind of makes up what we understand about Jesus' nature and who he is. So just a couple things. Um, So you might want to take this home and study it and really look at it, because I know we went through it pretty quickly, but there's a lot of good, meaty things in there, and it would be really cool to see all the scripture references for each of those, but I don't have that with me, but... Um, Some application. One, just understand that, so this is orthodox teaching about Jesus and the Trinity. Um, Orthodoxy has always been challenged, and it's going to continue to be challenged, um, and it's assaulted every day. So just understand that and be faithful to what we know as believers. I will offer a word of caution, though, (laughs) that the root of all these controversies seem to be somebody asking, how? How can that be? How can God be fully man and fully God? How can that possibly be? There's just some things we aren't going to know this side of heaven. Um, I think we have good reason to believe these things and they're they're right. But us trying to provide um, understanding just with our finite minds are going to be limited for sure. Uh, So we need to be focused on what God has revealed to us in his word and understand that some of these mysteries God has not explained to us. And that's okay. Okay. I think a right understanding, third application, right understanding of Jesus in his person is good because our hope is rooted in the fact that he is both God and man. The perfect eternal God, a very God who took on flesh and experienced all that we have experienced yet without sin. And that's where our hope is in, is in our Savior. Um, And each of these, I guess, sects of religion were trying to say that he was not one of these over the other. And when you say that, it, that destroys some of the, the hope that we have in Christ because we have hope that he is both God and man. Okay? I hope that was beneficial to you guys. Uh, I kind of went through it pretty quickly there towards the end. But um, I'm going to let Damon talk. And then after you talk, you can hand it back to me and I'll do some announcements. Sound good? All right. Thank you guys. And I'll pray at the end too. Well, good morning. Maybe you guys are too quiet. Um, It's good to be here. I'm going to introduce myself because I see a lot of familiar faces, but I see a lot of faces that aren't so familiar. My name is Damon Cup. You met my, hopefully met my beautiful wife a few weeks ago. She was in town. Um, She's in Uganda now. I'm heading back there tomorrow, but I wanted just to, they asked me just to give you some Uh, updates on what's going on in Uganda as we go there but I just wanted to say first off thank you so much because you know as I'm sitting here listening to Matt teach um, one thing that really struck me was the reading in Hebrews that we have a God who sins he sent his son because he loved us and he continues to send us out today he sends us not only to foreign nations he sends us to our own neighborhoods He sends us to our friends, to our family, but he sends people because he loves people. And uh, so thank you because I'm in Uganda largely because of you guys. This church has sent our family out and continues to be faithful supporters, not only financially, but but with prayer. And we covet both. We need both. Um, But thank you so much for having me here and letting me share a little bit. Now, two things I'm not used to, technology and being on time, Matt. Uh, (laughs) He said 10 minutes, and he wasn't kidding. Um, Now, I might not be faithful with the time like Matt was, but am I up? Yeah, here we go. So I have some pictures. I put this slide presentation. If the pictures seem a little bit random, it's because they are. I put this together this morning, and so let me, I just want to talk you through some of the things that are going on in our lives in Uganda. This is one of the most exciting things. This year, 2016, is one of the biggest years for us 
as far as building buildings. We are in the process of building an infrastructure so that we can better train pastors, better love our community. And what you see here is the administration building for the pastoral training center. We have four massive buildings that we've put up this year. This is the last one. Um, actually, this is an old picture. The walls are going up now. The roof is on. And Lord willing, 2018, we launch the, uh, our Bible training center with the first class. Um, we'll take 60 people in the first year, and then we'll continue to take 60 in every year. The Bible training center is three phases. This will be the training part of it where the classrooms are. You can't see it now, but just back on this side, you have classrooms. You have a cafeteria. Next year, we have to build the student housing, and so that's that's be our last step. And then 2018, we'll have our first pastoral training going on. And so we're super excited about that. Um, oh, let me go on to the next one. Um, one of the, uh, personally, one of the neat things, um, my wife does a Bible study in a village where, for the most part, we don't have a lot of people coming to church. Um, the village is about, about a 20-minute walk. This house is probably about a 30-minute walk from where we are. Jen goes there every Wednesday and does a ladies' Bible study. The ladies in the Bible study, they're loving it. They're really growing. Some of them are coming to our church. Some of them are going to another church just because it's closer. But the ladies were all like, you know what? We're growing, and we're benefiting from, you know, having the word taught to us. But our husbands aren't. And so they all got together. They decided, let's do a lunch. Let's invite all of our husbands. Have, talking to Jen, your husband come. Share with them and invite them to a Bible study. So this was that lunch day. Um, we went, I shared the gospel with the men primarily and asked them how many would be open to doing a Bible study. Most of them raised their hand. Unfortunately, most of them didn't actually come to the Bible study, but we had a good turnout. So I started, I've been doing that Bible study for eight weeks now. The first six weeks, I just went really slowly through the gospel. And then after that, we just started going through one of the books of the Bible. We started going through Colossians. And at the end of the six weeks, I asked, how many people want to continue doing this? And they all were like, we love this. We're benefiting so much. Let's keep going. So I keep going there to the village every week, and we go through. They're missing me now, um, and I'm missing them. But uh, this, another random photo, I was visiting in that area. Every once in a while, I try to set aside time each week where I just kind of go out in the community, and I visit different areas. This, I went over one day, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is a kitchen. So um, you'll have a home, but then you have a separate kitchen just to keep the heat and the smoke out of your house. While well, I walk up to this house, nobody appeared to be at home. I went to the kitchen, and there's a little girl inside cooking dinner. Um, she's 8 years old, come to find out not really in school because her parents can't afford to send her to school. So her parents weren't there. Um, I ended up going back to the house later, and I was talking to the dad through a translator and just saying, look, this girl needs to be in school. And he was like, yeah, we, we really can't afford it. And I said, no, <laughs> you can afford it. She needs to be in school. And whatever it takes, you need to bring her to Legacy because we were doing enrollment. And so I made him promise me that he was going to take her and enroll her in Legacy because I was like, she's eight years old. If she doesn't start now, she won't be able to start at our school because our school, the, ed the level of education, it's not something you can just walk into. You have to start, start in kindergarten. And she's eight. She's already getting too old to start kindergarten. So I was like, you've really got to bring this girl. So he did. So she's now going to be at Legacy this year, and I praise the Lord for that. Um, this is another lady I was out visiting. I heard she had a baby. So I go to visit her the day after. She had the baby in her hut. This is her hut. It's six feet by 12 feet. She has three other kids. And I'm just amazed by the people sometimes. I go out. I go to her, her hut. She had a baby the day before in her hut, and she's up getting me a chair so that I can be comfortable, and she's sitting on the floor, and I'm just sitting there amazed. Let me show you. Her daughter is one of my favorite girls. She, by the way, cooks at Legacy. The, her daughter, she'll be going to Legacy probably next year, 
Um, I introduced myself as Damon Cup. Locally, I'm known as Uncle Damony. Um, I think they put an, an E on the end of my name because my name Damon, the way we pronounce it here is the way they pronounce demon. Somehow, when you put an E on the end, I'm not a demon anymore. Um, <laughs> But all, to all the kids, all 250 kids that we have at Legacy, I'm Uncle Damony. That's who I am. And so when I walked up to her hut, this little girl is out in the front yard, and she's, Uncle Damony, Uncle Damony. And she runs up and gives me the biggest hug, and I'm going to adopt her one day. <laughs> Not really. Um, the exciting thing that we have this year at church, um, as as elders, one of the things that we see in this community where people are very poor, they can't afford to get married because um, marriage in Uganda is expensive or can be. And so it's a two-step process. The first step is you're introduced. And an introduction in Uganda, uh, officially and traditionally, it's where the bride will introduce the groom to her family. And it's a big deal. It's as big of a deal as the wedding. And it's just as expensive. And really, it's more expensive for the groom because this is where he pays the dowry. And they negotiate, basically, what he's going to give the father of the bride. And so this is where this happens. But this year at our church, we've really been pushing for couples. So let me back up. What they tend to do, because they can't afford to really get married, is they'll just start living together and for all intents and purposes they're married but they're not really married and they'll start having kids and they'll spend their whole lives that way well this year we started pushing you guys have got to get married you've got to make it right before God and so we had 10 couples commit this year we were like let's push have one big wedding we're going to help you go through the introductions and and whoever wants to do it we'll do it this year we had 10 couples commit and they've all stayed with it. This is one of the introductions I was actually attended when Jen was here. Um, this is one of our employees. Um, let me find him. Basically, this is we're getting ready to go. So we're with the husband's entourage, and we all travel together to go to the bride's home. And so we're getting ready to go. We all dress up. This, these are some of the gifts. As you can see, there's a goat, a cow. Uh, several cases of soda, um, soap, sugar, things like that. Whatever the father asks for and that they negotiate, the husband brings. So we all go. This is, our, this is him, Christopher. He's a great guy. He's been working for us for five years, really growing in the Lord, loves the Lord, is a man of integrity, which is really hard to find. Um, and so it's really exciting to see him get married to his wife. We all show up. We bring out the gifts. Everybody, this is the event. Everybody is in their best clothes. And it's, it's an all-day event. It's a lot of fun. Just kidding. Um, it's <laughs> Part of it's fun, but it's hot. You're wearing... A Kanza, which the, the guys, we wear these long dress looking things and we wear a sports coat over it. And so it's extremely hot. It's this day, it was like 95 degrees and we're out in the sun. Before I left, no, it wasn't Isaac, you weren't there. I think it was Nate said, I was like, it's going to be so hot today. I have on this long gown thing. And Isaac, my son, says, Well, dad, I mean, just don't wear anything under it. <laughs> Like, no, I can't do that, son. <laughs> I might be Uncle Damon then. Um, so we all load up and we go. These are, we're carrying the gifts to the, the bride's family. Um, there's me and my Kanza, my sports jacket. But we sit, it's, it's really a, it's, it's an all-day event. And it's funny, the, the bride's family sits under one tent. The groom's family sits on another tent on the other side, and it's this back-and-forth thing for about three hours. Um, the spokesperson for the bride's family, you know, why are you here? It's this big... It, traditionally, I think it had meaning. I think it's lost some of that now. Um, it's just more for play. I mean, they go through the roles, and why are you here? What do you want? And the spokesman for the, bride, for the groom 
you know, we, we just came to visit. We brought you some gifts because they never tell them what they're doing, even though they know what they're doing. Um, so it's a, then you have a meal. So this is start serving food. This is the, let's see, the, the bride's family's under that tent. The groom's family's under this one. Um, and the way it works is the aunt of the bride knows the groom because the groom goes through the aunt. He doesn't go directly to the dad, and the aunt negotiates with the dad. So the ceremony is where the groom is revealed, and it's, it's a big thing. Um, the aunt will come out, and she dances through the crowd of the groom, and, they, and then she's like, she'll go to one guy that's not the groom and, you know, pretend that she's going to get him, and then she'll keep going. And uh, inevitably, being the only white guy there, I sometimes get picked um, as a joke. Um, and, uh, and so she goes through the crowd, and then she'll actually grab the groom and pull him up and then bring him out. And then that's sort of how the ceremony ends. But, um, but we have, we've done all 10 introductions. The last one they did last weekend, um, we're setting to do one mass marriage just to keep costs down in March and we'll have 10 weddings all in one day um, on SOS property. We're going to have tents and a sound system and try to get all 10 marriages done in one day. Um, so y'all can pray for us. That's going to be a big undertaking. Um, but that's, that's really the big highlights this year. A lot of buildings, a lot of growth, um, legacies up to 250 kids next year will be up to 300 um, and all of these kids they're just you just have to come I mean I know the team was here that came back I'm sure they shared everything and oh that was the other big thing uh, we've had playground equipment donated and we had three teams this summer who four teams actually we have two playground centers and then Calvary came down and put up the swings so there's two sets of swings for our school, and then the last team that just left um, built a basketball court for our school. So um, we're super excited about all that God's doing there. It's growing, um, people are being impacted, and we're really looking forward to the Pastoral Training Center. Right now, we have conferences where we go to different regions, but we're hoping to have more of a formal training that we bring pastors in and do that. Um, that's pretty much all of the updates that I have, but I'll answer any questions if I have time, Matt. Anybody have any questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, so we're we're developing curriculum. It will be similar to a seminary. Um, you know, when Matt was talking earlier about the difference between East Rome and Rome, um, where well, we're Rome, <laughs> uh, people are just trying to survive. Um, so some of the things that you would see in a seminary here aren't as applicable. Um, they need more basic, more fundamental training. Um, so I don't think we'd be doing church history. There's, I don't think there's a plan for that now. Um, maybe it, I said it's three phases, maybe in the last phase, but at this point it's more fundamental training. A lot of these guys can barely write and read, so that's going to be a major component. So you're, you're really dealing on a completely different level than you would be here. Yes, sir. Phase one is just a one year. And they're gonna, it's going to be an intense discipleship year. And so they'll come for like three months and they'll go home. Then they'll come back. So it'll just be the, the husband, the one that's in the training. Phase two, they'll bring their whole families. So really, we're going to be building phase one housing this year. Next year, we're building phase two housing, which will really be like a little community. So that'll be. But we're, this year, we put in a new water system. We drilled two new boreholes put in a bigger tower so we our water supply is 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 ready as, as well as it can be um, you know sometimes you you have to add things later when you realize you it's not adequate but um, but yeah so phase two will be complete families 
Any other questions? Please continue to pray for these guys, these people that are getting married. Um, it's really, we want to make a statement at the wedding that you need to honor God in your marriages, and part of that is doing it the right way, um, even though it costs money. And so um, we're really hoping to, to honor God that way through the marriages. So pray for these guys that God will continue to encourage them to do the right thing. Um, pray for us and pray for these kids. We need our biggest need at Legacy. Let me, sorry, I'm giving nice. some prayer requests. Um, teachers, we have the hardest time finding qualified godly teachers. That's our biggest struggle. We can find qualified teachers, but they're not believers. Um, or we can find believers and they can't read or write. And so um, that's our biggest challenge. God has been faithful. This has been a hard year. We've really struggled having too few teachers because we're kind of at the point where we don't want to just hire somebody. We want to hire the right person, so we're willing to do without teachers and make do however we can. Um, but we've actually found some good teachers I'm hoping are going to work out. So we just pray that God would bring us the right teachers and the right personnel. So that would be great. Much appreciated.